Hello, and welcome to the 12th episode of InfoSec Sync, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H.net. InfoSec Sync is also brought to you by AllPoints. AllPoints provides a range of technology and mission-critical services within its core competencies that span systems engineering, information technology, cybersecurity, software development, as well as hardware and software integrated solutions. AllPoints, integrating personnel, technology, and services to exceed customer expectations. Visit them on the web at allpointsllc.com. InfoSec Inc. is also brought to you by the Van Dyke Technology Group. At Van Dyke, their work is focused on the performance and security of information systems of national impact. Optimize performance, maximize security. Experience the Van Dyke difference and visit them on the web at vdtg.com. And now, for Stories of the Week, ending December 12th, 2014. What's up, InfoSec Sync fam? How y'all doing? What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of InfoSec Sync. An exciting episode, guys. Right. We're going to get it popping. So, this is another consecutive episode so just to let y'all know we're back in our schedule we're back on time we're gonna be releasing this stuff out to you guys um again thank you for listening and uh let's get it going so last week we talked about um you know the effects of data loss and downtime to enterprise environments something serious so somebody has to tally all this together and actually figure out um, what's lost. So Money's lost. That's what's lost, Money, Matt. time, et cetera, et cetera. So EMC Corporation did a uh, survey, and they pulled all their data together, and they did a report. So with that said, data loss and downtime costs enterprise environments $1.7 trillion. Ooh, you that's a lot of money. You would think that would be like in the past two years, right, or right. three years. No, that's in the past 12 months. Oh, jeez. And that's the equivalent of 50% of Germany's GDP, or nearly 50%. So data loss is up 400% since 2012, while surprisingly 71% of organizations are still not fully confident in their ability to recover after a disruption, according to EMC. So with that said, the good news is that the number of data loss incidents is decreasing overall. Oh, that's good. However, the volume of data loss during an incident is growing exponentially. So to kind of give you guys some bullet points here, 64% of enterprises surveyed experienced data loss or downtime in the past 12 months. The average business experienced more than three working days or 25 hours of unexpected downtime in the past 12 months. And 
other commercial consequences of disruptions were loss of revenue at 36% and delay to product development, which was 34%. So listeners, does that sound right in your environments? Right. If you have any input for it, go ahead and uh, hit us up at feedback at infosexsync.com and give us an answer to that question. But business trends such as big data, mobile, and hybrid cloud create new challenges for data protection. 51% of businesses lack a DRP or disaster recovery plan of these environments, and just 6% have a plan for all three, big data, mobile, and hybrid cloud. In fact, 62% rated big data, mobile, and hybrid cloud as difficult to protect. So with 30% of all primary data located in some form of cloud storage, this could result in a substantial loss to the business. Absolutely. problem. So adopting advanced data protection technologies dramatically decreases the likelihood of disruption, and many companies turn to multiple IT vendors to solve their data protection challenges. However, a siloed approach to deploying these can increase risks. So maybe they um, they go they transfer the risk to other companies because they don't want to deal with it. They don't have the manpower to deal with it or the right. money. That's exactly right. So, so that's why fifty one percent probably lacked a disaster recovery plan. I guess exactly. Wow. Okay. What else? So, enterprises that have not deployed a continuous availability strategy were twice as likely to suffer a data loss as those that had. So you're twice as likely if you do not have a continuous availability strategy to maintain that availability of the business. Businesses using three or more vendors to supply data protection solutions lost three times as much data as those who unified their data protection strategy around a single vendor. Holy cow, because the uh, three aren't as protected. (laughs) Right. Just because you have more doesn't mean you're more protected. So you're transferring the risk to three other vendors, but I guess you need to read up on um, their security policies as well. Right. Maybe an SLA. Right. So now you can focus that single SLA to a single vendor. A lot of people think if you have multiple vendors, that means that you're spreading the risk amongst those vendors, especially for data protection, but you're not. You know, everybody could have different mandates. They could have different organizational structures. They could have different ways of providing that service to you. And they may not necessarily be um, used to things like an SLA, an MOU, you know, all the all the normal things that, that should be done. So those enterprises with three vendors were also likely to spend an average of $3 million more on oh, their data protection cow. infrastructure compared to those who just had one. So it sounds like these companies don't have the security intellect and they rely on other vendors to come in and give them what they think is protection, but they don't know what to look for with these vendors. You don't know what you don't know. So I I don't, I mean, you could classify it as a lack of intellect. However, you know, security with the events that are occurring, you know, it's ever changing. What happens today could be different than what happens tomorrow. Attack trends change. It's hard to stay up on all of that. So they're ignorant to the fact just because of the fact that they don't know, which is not their fault. You know, if you're a CEO running a company, I don't expect you to know about Poodle, um, Heartbleed, you know, all of these different, you know, new attacks that, that come up all the time. I'm not expecting you to know about that, but I am expecting you to understand the risks that are involved and have somebody delegated to give you a report on if we go with three data protection vendors, vice one, where are my risks, what are my expenditures, and at the end of the day, what is it taking off of my bottom line? 
And is it is it providing me anything? So EMC Data Protection Index survey participants were awarded points based on their responses, ranking their data maturity in one of four categories. So the vast majority, 87% of businesses rank in the bottom two categories for data protection maturity. Globally, 13% rank ahead of the curve with 11% classed as adopters and 2% classed as leaders. China has the greatest number of companies ahead of the curve at 30%, and UAE is the least at 0%. Very large enterprises of more than 5,000 employees were twice as likely, or 24%, uh, to be ahead of the curve than smaller enterprises of 250 to 449 employees at 12%. Companies in the U.S. and the Netherlands were the greatest vanguards outside of Asia, Pacific, and Japan at 20 and 21, respectively. So, to sum it all up, um, Guy Churchwood, president of EMC Core Technology, said, This research highlights the enormous monetary impact of unplanned downtime and data loss to businesses everywhere. With 62% of IT decision makers interviewed feeling challenged to protect hybrid cloud, big data, and mobile, it's understandable that almost all of them lack the confidence that data protection will be able to meet future business challenges. They say, uh, we hope the Global Data Protection Index will prompt IT leaders to pause and reevaluate whether their current data protection solutions are in alignment with today's business requirements as their long-term goals. And uh, just to give you some more, a little bit more stats, EMC Global Data Protection uh, Index conducted by Vincent Bourne survey 3,300 IT decision makers from mid-sized to enterprise class businesses across 24 countries. So it is a pretty comprehensive study. Yeah, that's those are pretty good numbers. Um, it just shows how many more people we need in security. Right. So, and again, just because you have more doesn't mean it's better. Just because you're spending more doesn't mean necessarily you're more protected than the next company. Um, you have to remain agile. So the key IT decision makers, so we're talking to the CIO, we're talking to the director of IT, we're talking to individuals that are charged with that responsibility um, to make those decisions and inform, you know, the budget determiners, whatever the case is in an enterprise environment, that protection is and availability is something that should be at the forefront. And this is what it's going to cost you to ensure that you minimize the risk of uh, loss of availability. You just need smart people on your team that stay um, with the current trends and know what's going on. Right. The CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, availability. It's the basis of any business. So, um, all right. I'm done with that one. Um, that that was those were some pretty good stats. So I can't wait to see um, you know what the change is next year. Uh, hopefully, we'll see some improved numbers. Maybe some numbers will drop. Right, Nick, you have something from uh, Trend Micro for us, right? Some new point of sale malware. Yeah, new point of sale malware that appears to be under development, detected by the security firm at Trend Micro as TSPY underscore pauselogger.k. The threat relies on multiple components to carry out its mission, which makes it similar to a recently discovered variant of the notorious black POS malware, which was TSPY underscore memlog.a. Pauselogger is designed to read the memory associated with specific processes in an effort to obtain payment card information. The data is then saved to files named rep.bin and rep.tmp. The list of targeted processes is specified in a .ini file 
that acts as a configuration file. However, researchers haven't found the config file on the infected system, so it's kind of uncertain which processes are scanned by the malware. And the same configuration file also includes a variable that specifies the time interval for rescanning the processes. Interesting. Yeah. So there are several other clues that have led the experts to believe that pause loggers either under development or still in the beta testing phase. So here's an example. The malware's code contains debugging information. It doesn't connect to any command and control server, and it doesn't upload the harvested data either. So since pause logger appears to be a multi-component malware, researchers assumed that the component responsible for transferring the dump data is deployed as a package, like as a whole. Um, according to Trend Micro, the threat is distributed through drive-by downloads and with the aid of other malware. Last week, researchers at the threat intelligence company Intelcrawler reported uncovering a new POS malware targeting electronic kiosks, dubbed D4REDEV1. The malware has been spotted on close to 80 machines in the EU, the United States, and Australia. So it's not surprising that the number of threats designed to target POS systems is increasing, considering, considering that this type of malware has been successfully used in a large number of operations. In the attack against Target, cybercriminals managed to steal more than 40 million credit and debit card records with the aid of the black POS malware. The back-off RAM scraper has also been used in a lot of attacks. In August, the U.S. Secret Service estimated that over a thousand businesses had been hit with that one. So yeah, we reported on that. Yeah, we sure did. So there's still a lot of stuff going around, and it seems that that is under development. So one thing to keep in mind if you're in the business of collecting collecting people's payment card information right now, you're a huge target. No pun intended. To target. <laughs> yeah. So even the um, the people that work there, insiders. Right. So you have a huge half value for the information yeah. you're possessing. So um, definitely stay on your toes. So POS logger is something to look, uh, to look out for. So I guess the difference is it's a variant of black POS. It's designed to read the memory associated with specific processes. And the data is then saved into rep.bin and rep.temp. Okay. And then the list of the targeted processes are in that INI file, which which is the config file. Actually, they haven't found the configuration file in the infected system, so it's uncertain which processes are scanned by the malware. So that would be a good roadmap. Absolutely. But that would be a good start. So we'll keep on the lookout for that. If we find something, we'll let you guys know. But just know POS loggers out there. We'll post up the notes and just take a look. Be on, be on the lookout. Hey, Matt, so, um, you know, one of the big things that's been happening this week and especially last week that everyone is uh, concerned about and I guess excited about because there's free stuff on the Internet is uh, the Sony um, breach. All right. So you remember iCloud? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember iCloud. <laughs> so with iCloud and what occurred there, we're seeing something very similar happen with, with Sony. We warned... Uh, listeners last week last week do not download this stuff Um, they're going to start you know putting this uh, the files out there for download 
And if you download the files, you're opening yourself up to not only the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, but you're also opening yourself up to possible malware, um, crimeware, or, you know, something being uh, put onto your system. So to go in, in more depth, GOP Guardians of Peace re- released a new archive of Sony uh, SPE confidential data to include private information of employees, celebrity phone numbers, film scripts, and more. So the breach is becoming, you know, a never-ending history, and the GOP is leaking company data and much, much more uh, since the attack. While security firms are security firms are providing the details um, of their analysis of the wiper malware used in the attack, the damage is significant for the company and a significant impact to the employees and those who have maintained a working relationship with Sony. The hackers, after the disclosure of the online SPE-sensitive data, started to use them to treat company staff and to prepare for um, for further attacks. It is the news of the day that experts at Kaspersky Lab have detected a new strain of Destover malware that uses digitally signed certificates, so Sony certificates, stolen in the cyber attacks. And it's a technique that could allow a group to hit many other legitimate targets um, and individuals that think it's legitimate Sony. Uh, avoiding detection of, um, you know, defense systems that aren't really looking, you know, past that layer uh, and and actually doing really deep inspection. So GOP took responsibility for the massive attack against SPE, and they released a new batch of confidential data. It included um, private information of the employees, celebrity phone numbers, their travel aliases of the celebrities, <laughs> upcoming film, uh, film scripts, film budgets, and many more. So let's go through line by line at what was released. Movies financial data, so a large file detailed financial data which includes revenues and budget costs for all of Sony's recent films. Uh, Unreleased movie scripts, so that's unreleased scripts for upcoming movies including The Wedding Ringer with Kevin Hart, Paul Blart Mall Cop, and uh, the animated film Pixels. And the animated film Sausage Party with Seth Rogen and Kristen um, (laughs) have also... Um, been released so celebrities personal data a huge dump of information related to celebrities personal data including aliases formerly used by famous actors have also been released which is really embarrassing for the company Brad Pitt's phone number is also listed which could be uh, also of his assistant Seth Rogen and Emma Stone's personal email address as well as Jesse Eisenberg's home address have also been leaked um, among a lot of emails and phone numbers for lesser-known celebrities. So, um, in regards to the Sony um, compromise, um, the release schedules were also released. That's a number of files that detail confidential movie release schedules, both for SPE and Sony-owned Columbia Pictures. Invoices, which is uh, had was a folder containing hundreds of invoices related to various movie projects, including Skyfall, Captain Phillips, and Smurfs 2. Bank accounts. Um, there are files which contain dozens of bank accounts, both personal and belonging to Sony. Um, Sony's promotional activities, a bill detailing SPE's expenditures when promoting movies, which included Tom Hanks, Naomi Harris's styling bill, the Skyfall London premiere in 2012, along with bills that Sony spent in distributing gifts. So pretty bad situation. A lot of information was leaked. Um, leaked, and the situation is becoming embarrassing. Um, and the leak is damaging the reputation of the company, according to the Post. 
published by Reuters, the economic impact of the attack against SPE could be greater than $100 million. That's in U.S. dollars. Um, experts who have analyzed economic impact of the previous attack told Reuters that though the cost would be less than $171 million, which Sony estimated when the um, PlayStation Network was hacked in 2011, it still will rank up there. So, and I quote, the attack believed to be the worst of its type on a company on U.S. soil also hit Sony reputation for a perceived failure to safeguard information, said Jim Lewis, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Usually when people, or usually people do get over this type of event, but it does have a short-term effect. Who estimated the cost for Sony could stretch into $100 million. So the estimation results from an evaluation of the cost of data breaches that have occurred in the past, the uh, cost of investigation activities, loss of trade secrets, computer repair replacement, and steps to prevent a future attack. But we have to consider the damaged reputation and overall, overall lost productivity while operations were interrupted. While Sony um, Pictures Entertainment has to decline to estimate the cost, um, confirming that the company is still uh, assessing the impact. And they're assessing the impact along with um, Mandiant and FireEye, who's doing the incident report, correct? Right, right. So there, there are multiple people looking at this and, and basically saying, okay, what was lost? Um, what was the impact? And um, basically, how can we mitigate uh, these things, the, the events that occurred from occurring in the future? But, you know, that's... One thing that you have to look at, along with the last story with, you know, not necessarily more is better. Um, In this case, it has to be a strategically placed computer network defense um, program within the enterprise environment to prevent these types of attacks. And again, um, incident response is, is a continuous process. So it's looking at current threat trends within the environment, um, generating custom signatures, whatever the case is, but that an elementary rudimentary IR and CND program needs to be developed for these enterprise environments, especially when the valuation of the company is very large, like with Sony. There's a lot at stake. Um, however, is $100 million and $171 million, $271 million within the past um, three years, is that a drop in the bucket for them? Yeah, probably. Um, it's not much compared to uh, how much money they're making uh, in total. So it's something to look at, something to keep in mind. Again, we can have a lessons learned from this and kind of um, not have history repeat itself in the future, right? And we'll see in the uh, upcoming weeks what actually happened or what ex- Right, what exactly happens. So in the attack, um, we mentioned the compromise certificates, which were used for, I think it's called Destover? Correct, the Destover malware. So do you have um, some information on that? I do, and it comes from Kaspersky because they detected a strain of Destover malware that's been digitally signed with the certificate stolen um, during the Sony attack. Uh, Destover was detected several times uh, in the last years. One of the most... um, one of the most clamorous attacks is the Dark Soul run by Who Is team in 2013 targeted media and banking, um, mostly from South Korea and television networks YTN, M as in Motel, MBC, and KBS, and Shanann Bank and Nong Hup Bank, two of the major banks of the country, 
and they suffered serious outage because of the Destover malware. Uh, so the Destover family of Trojans, it's known because once compromised on a machine, it's able to steal data and wipe all the information that it's stored. <laughs> the new variant is identical to an earlier version of Destover that was not signed. And the group that claimed credit for the attack against Sony Pictures, the GOP, stole a huge amount of data from the company and evidently also digital certificates. The attackers are gradually releasing large amounts of the information uh, like we talked about earlier. Um, last week, Sony Picture employees received threatening emails sent by the GOP and now using the stolen digital certificates to sign the malicious code. How ingenious is that? The new signed version of Destover appears to have been compiled in July 2014th and was signed lastly on December 5th. And there are two hashes that are involved. Um, we're going to post those on our show notes so you can see what those are. And the use of digitally signed code of an application has a main purpose, and that is to increase the trust in the development process helping avoid fraud and software alterations. The practice of digitally signing malicious code is very common with malware coders. It allows them to elude all the controls and related alerts provided for the execution of software developed by non-accredited firms. In all three cases, Shamoon, Dark Soul, and Destover, the groups claiming credit for the destructive impact across the entire large network had no history or real identity of their own, and this was from Kurt Baumgartner of Kapersky. He also said all attempted to disappear following their act. They did not make clear statements, but did make bizarre and roundabout accusations of criminal conduct and instigated their destructive acts immediately after a pol politically charged event that was suggested as having been at the heart of the matter. Uh, the, so the stolen Sony certificates can be used to sign other malicious samples. In turn, these can be further used in other attacks. Because the Sony digital certificates are trusted by security solutions, this makes attacks more effective. So, what do you think about that, Matt? Again, within the enterprise environment, or in any environment for that matter, a perfect way for me as an attacker to get around being undetected is to um, attack the integrity. So trust. So if we have uh, a, a trust web or some type of implicit trust within a an enterprise environment, I'm going to look at that and say, all right, what certificates are signed? What can I, you know, what's the bow on top for my malware? How am I going to get it into the enterprise environment? How am I going to go undetected? And how am I going to exfil or whatever the goal of that malware is to do? So this makes the job of the attacker very easy um, with, you know, kind of uh, looking at the integrity and saying, all right, I'm going to attack that portion of the, of the equation. So definitely something that you could see, you know, happening um and and attacking trust so it's something to look at again if you're in an enterprise environment and somebody does use this type of attack you can look at the endpoint and you can say this is what legitimate activity looks like um maybe do um some type of uh 
traffic modeling or something to kind of establish what your baseline is. If it goes outside of that baseline, you can say, all right, either somebody is doing something nefarious on this box or it's outside of its normal operation. Either way, you can get some type of a um, verification that, you know, something in d that is legitimate is occurring on the box and not nefarious, of which you would start that incident response process and say, okay, let's do some computer forensics, look at, you know, what's on the box, is it a new string of malware, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, recognition and identification of it occurring within the enterprise environment is the first step. So um, with that said, Poodle. Poodle? Poodle. There's no Poodle in here. Right, but there's a, a Poodle out there. So researchers at Qualys revealed that Poodle is likely to hit some of the most popular websites because the flaw also affects implementations of newer TLS. So, Matt, tell our listeners what Poodle is. So, Poodle is padding Oracle on downgraded legacy encryption, P-O-O-D-L-E. So, it's a critical vulnerability affecting SSL that was discovered in 2014, along, along the same time as, um, as Heartbleed. So, with um, Poodle... Basically, the researchers at Google that discovered it explained that the Poodle flaw is related to the extended support implemented by the majority of web servers and web browsers uh, to the SSL version 3. The SSL version 3 protocol is used to secure communications um, channels despite it has been replaced by TLS. So unfortunately, SSL v3, unlike TLS 1.0 or newer, does not perform validation of all data related in every message sent over a secure channel. And this circumstance allows a bad actor to decipher every single byte at the time of the encrypted traffic and see it in clear text. Resuming, Poodle allowed attackers to intercept traffic between the user's web browser and the HTTP um, or the HTTPS website through a man-in-the-middle attack causing exposure of sensitive data. Webmasters worldwide... Um, after the alert issued by Google's research team have patched their systems to fix a flaw, but Poodle is still scaring the security experts because the vulnerability also affects implementations of the newer TLS protocol. So um, Adam Langley says, we're removing SSL v3 in, flavor of, or in favor of TLS because TLS fully specifies the contents of the padding bytes and thus stops the attack. However, TLS's padding is a subset of SSL's, SSL v3's padding, so technically you could use an SSL v3 decoding function with TLS, and it would still work fine. It wouldn't check the padding byte, but that wouldn't cause any problems in normal operation. However, if an SSL v3 decoding function was used with TLS, then the Poodle attack would, the Poodle attack would work, even against TLS connections. End quote. So the news is disconcerting because the security industry believed that TLS was immune, but Poodle is likely to affect some of the most popular websites, including those managed by government entities, including um, financial institutions and private firms. So this is not good. Bank of America and Accenture were uh, affected by this. So the new vulnerability coded as CVE 2014-8730 affects TLS version 1.2, which fails to handle padding as explained by the researchers at Qualys. 
some implementations of the TLS protocol don't check the padding structure after the description process. The vulnerability is considered critical. Qualys firm reports that it has been estimated that about 10% of the servers are vulnerable to the Poodle attack through TLS. Um, and I quote, the impact of this problem is similar to, um, to that of Poodle, with the attack being slightly easier to execute. No need to downgrade modem clients down to SSL 3 first, and TLS 1.2 will do just fine. So that was um, Ivan Ristik, which is the Qualys uh, Director of Application Security Research, and that was uh, in a blog post on their, uh, on their blog titled Poodle, Poodle Bytes TLS. So it was also said that the main target is browsers um, because the attacker must inject malicious JavaScript to initiate the attack. A successful attack will use about 256 requests to uncover one cookie character or only 4096 requests for a 16-character cookie. That makes the attack quite practical. Qualys also provides a free online tester um, that allows users to check if a system is affected by the vulnerability. Um, the SSL server test has been updated in order to detect the problem. Um, and it's on their site there. It's, uh, you know, you can navigate to their site. It's under home projects and it's uh, entitled uh, SSL server test. And uh, till now, security experts have discovered that the load balancers and other network devices sold by vendors um, like F5 and A10 networks um, support TLS connections. They are also vulnerable to this variant of the Poodle attack. F5 networks confirmed that the F5 kit is vulnerable to it. Um, F F5 uh, says that F5 and A10, well, it was said that F5 and A10 have posted patches for their products and uh, they also have A10 also put out an advisory. They're not completely sure that they found every affected vendor, but now that the issue is public, any other affected products should come quickly, you know, to light. So everything less than TLS 1.2 with an AEAD cipher suite is broken. And that was um, Google's Adam Langley. So he says that he's not completely sure that He's found every affected vendor, but now that the issue is public, any other one should, again, come to light. So don't waste your time. Check your website using the SSL Labs test, and if it's vulnerable, apply the patch provided um, by the vendor. So that's pretty cool. What do you think, Nick? I think it's pretty cool. Poodle's coming to bite, huh? Yeah. So it's something definitely to watch out for and... Uh, Keep an eye out for. Again, there are going to be multiple advisories that are going to come out, um, and you know you just have to keep an eye out, ensure that your servers are patched, and that you know you can test them accordingly. So here's something interesting. We had talked about um, probably about five shows back um, Apple's two-factor authentication or two-step verification, I should say, right? Um, but recently, something came out saying if you lose your recovery key with two-step verification, Apple cannot help you. By forgetting recovery key, it could completely lock a person out of their account. Uh-oh. Not good. More than one year ago, Apple introduced a two-step verification system to implement a two-factor authentication process and improve security for Apple IDs. And since March of 2013, Apple has progressively extended the two-step verification system to other countries and has introduced a feature to protect other services offered by the company, including, of course, 
the Apple iCloud, for which the feature was added in September after the Fappening case. In September, the CEO Tim Cook announced the imminent implementation of a two-factor authentication mechanism to protect the access to the iCloud service from a mobile device that was effective with the iOS 8. Mr. Cook highlighted the great importance reserved by Apple to the user's privacy, confirming that the company will do even more to protect users' data. The two-step verification system requires a user to provide the number of a second trusted device that is used to verify the user's identity in addition to an extra security code called a recovery key. The reporter at the next web, Owen Williams, explained that the recovery key mechanism could completely lock a person out of their Apple account if they're being hacked. Williams discovered that someone had tried to hack his Apple iCloud account despite the Apple's two-step verification system. The mechanism correctly avoided the unauthorized access to the system and blocked the account. Unfortunately, denying both the would-be hacker and Williams access to it. Doesn't sound good. This sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Earlier this week, a strange message popped up on my Mac that I thought nothing of, is what he said. You can't sign in because your account was disabled for security reasons. He dismissed it and thinking it would solve itself and went to sleep. So the reporter then tried to recover the password with the Apple I Forgot procedure. To unlock the account, it is requested to provide recovery key or the number of a trusted device, as he was led to believe, by an Apple support document, but he was wrong. The Apple support page relating to lockouts assured him it would be easy to recover his account with a combination of any two of either of his password or a trusted device or the two-factor recovery key. When he headed to the account recovery service, dubbed I Forgot, he discovered that there was no way back in without the recovery key. Then it hit him. He had no idea where his recovery key was or if he'd ever even put the piece of paper Uh-oh. in a safe place. <laughs> so he says he's moved since he set up the two-factor on iCloud. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to retrieve a screenshot or a carbon backup copy of the recovery key he had taken for extra safekeeping. Then he contacted the Apple customer support and was told that there was no way Apple could help him despite being offered a scan of his government ID, his trusted devices, and other proof that it was him. In a second call he made to the support line, he received the following reply, quote, We take your security very seriously at Apple. But at this time, we cannot grant you access back into your Apple account. We recommend you create a new Apple ID. A new one? Yeah, that would kind of suck, wouldn't it? Right, everything is tied to your Apple ID. That's like Apple saying, come mess with us, but we're not going to support you if you lose your Apple ID. Yeah, what about all the stuff you bought in iTunes and movies and all that? Right. So after a couple more days of talking to Apple customer support, the reporter discovered that it was impossible to unlock the account without a recovery key, even though Apple's support document explains that it is possible with a trusted device. So he shared uh, this, his web experience, warning the reader on possible consequences in managing Apple recovery key for the two-step verification system. Williams explained that losing the recovery key could permanently lock a user out of their Apple ID 
with Apple unable to do anything to help. And quote, I know it was stupid that I'd lost the recovery key, but I'd set it up so long ago I could not remember where it would conceivably be. There's only so many things I can keep track of, just like everyone else, right? Right. Besides, I figured I'd be able to use trusted device to get out of a mess like this. End quote. So manage your two-step verification system now before an attack will force you to do it in difficult conditions. <laughs> For sure. But in this case, it seems like, you know, uh, he was kind of set up um, for failure in the sense that with the recovery key, just like with the um, Google two-step verification, there are a set of one-time passwords that you can print off. I think it's a set of 10 at a time that you print off onto a piece of paper. And that's not like a recovery key. Those are if you don't have access to a mobile device to obtain um, the information for the two-factor authentication method, but kind of the same idea, right? You're printing something off for safekeeping, and in the event that you need it, you have to resort back to that. However, with the recovery key, depending upon where you store that, now if I'm an attacker, I look at the path of least resistance through, let's say you keep this in your favorite notebook, right? That's on your desk. Well, with your recovery key, or you leave it on the printer when you print it off, right? Oh, in an enterprise environment, that's something that could happen. Yeah. Now I can walk up. I have your recovery key. I have your Apple ID. Now I can get unfettered access to your Apple account and be you. And I probably know your um, your phone if you have a, a, a – what are those things you put in your wallet? The contact cards? Right. <laughs> or contact list? Right. So um, let's see. Segwaying into the next story, security experts at Kaspersky Lab have detected the first strain of Turla malware that was designed to infect Linux systems, and it's so-called Penguin Turla. So not Penguin, Penguin, right? A little bit different. So security experts at Kaspersky have discovered a new variant of Turla, um, which was designed to hit Linux systems, and for this reason, it got the name. The um, investigation started after... And apparently, a new strain of malware was uploaded to a multi-scanner service. The malware was an unknown piece of government malware, Turla, which was considered by the security experts as one of the most complex APTs in history. Turla was detected for the first time by researchers at BAE, which believed that the malware was developed by Russian cyber specialists. Probably all these instances are part of a cyber weapons program um, from the government of Moscow. The, and again, we report what we see. So none of this is something that's homegrown from Nick and myself. This is all from a report, which we'll post up that you guys can check out. That's our disclaimer statement. Boilerplate. So um, with that said, all of these instances were part of the cyber weapon program um, of the government of Moscow. The experts at BAE Systems Applied Intelligence who discovered the snake campaign have linked the platform to Eurobos. Does that sound right? Uh, Rootkit, which uh, is another malware used for cyber espionage, and it was discovered by the German firm GData. So, and I quote uh, from SecureList.com: "This newly found Turla component supports Linux for broader su system support at victim sites." The attack tool takes us further into the set alongside the snake rootkit 
and its component first associated with this actor a couple years ago. We suspect that this component was running for years at a victim site, but do not have concrete data to support that statement. So the Penguin Turla is written in C, C++, and linked multiple libraries that increase its file size. The authors have stripped the code of symbol information, probably to increase the difficulty of analysis by security experts. Its functionality includes uh, hidden network communications, arbitrary remote co command execution, and remote management. Much of its code is based on um, public sources. Like other variants of Turla, um, Penguin Turla implements functionalities like hidden network communication, remote control of infected machines, and arbitrary remote command execution. The Penguin Turla does not require ev elevated privileges for its execution, and it is very hard to detect. So, um, and I state, uh, and I quote, it uses techniques that don't require root access, which allows it to um, be <laughs> to freely run uh, on more victim hosts. Even if a regular user with limited privileges launches it, it can continue to intercept incoming packets and run commands on the system. That's what the post said. The experts discovered <laughs> that in the code of Penguin, um, the hardest coded address of the CNC used by attackers was news-bbc.podzone.org, which responds to the IP address 80.246.65.183 and is currently sinkholed by Kaspersky Lab. So the command and control mechanism used by Penguin is based on TCP UDP packets and the CNC host name fits previously known Turla activity. The experts highlighted that this variant of Turla appears to be put together from public sources, and the attackers have integrated um, adding other functionalities and leaving inactive older stubs of the code from older versions of the malware. So it leaves you know, inactive older stubs. So the experts at Kaspersky have discovered that uh, another Penguin Turla example, which apparently represents a different malware generation than previously known instances. So this was... Um, uploaded to virus total and um, the only antivirus anti-malware that detected it was Kaspersky so uh, and that was in virus total so the detection ratio was one out of 55 and this was analysis was done on the six so pretty serious stuff um, you know keep an eye out for Turla and the experts have no doubts that there are many instances of Turla in the wild, still unknown. So, Nick, do you have anything to say about Turla? Nope. It's really cool. Wait, didn't we already do this? No. Um, you mean as far as seeing Turla in the wild before? Yeah. Um, I, You know, it's kind of hard to say. They have specific TTPs. Um, Penguin right. is a little bit different. So we'll have to just play it by ear with this one. I guess just keep an eye on it then. Right. So, um... You know, again, look at network anomalies, look at what's occurring at the endpoint, what's traversing your network. Take a look at that. Hey, but I've got some new vulnerabilities. Google app? Yeah, so researchers at Security Explorations found more than 30 vulnerabilities in the Google app engine, and it allowed code execution and sandboxing. Ooh. A team of security researchers in Poland announced to have discovered these um, in the Java environment of the Google app engine that could be exploited by hackers to bypass critical security sandbox defenses. Hmm. The Google App Engine is the company 
platform as a service cloud computing platform that allows customers to develop and run web apps in Google managed data centers. The Google App Engine platform allows users to run apps built in a variety of languages and frameworks such as Java and Python. The researchers at Security Explorations have found more than 30 vulnerabilities. They posted an advisory on full disclosure website signed by Adam Godiak, founder and CEO of Security Explorations. The advisory includes several of the issues the team at Security Explorations found in the engine. We bypassed GAE whitelisting of JRE classes, achieved complete Java VM security sandbox escape, 17 full sandbox bypassing bypass POC codes exploiting 22 issues in total. We achieved native code execution, ability to issue arbitrary library and system calls. They also gain access to the files, binary classes, comprising the JRE sandbox that includes the monster libjava runtime binary, which is huge. They also extracted dwarf info from binary files, extracted protobuf definitions from Java classes, description of 57 services and 542.proto files. They extracted the protobuf definition from binary files, which is a description of eight services and 68.proto files. And they also analyzed the everything that I mentioned and learned a lot about the environment for Java Sandbox, among others. It's curious to note that the experts haven't completed their tests because while they were performing them on the platform, Google suspended the test account that they had set up. Wow. Godiak requested Google to restore the test account so they could finish their tests. And here's a quote from him. He said, without any doubt, this is an OPSEC failure on our end. This week we did poke a little bit more aggressively around the underlying operating system sandbox slash issued various system calls in order to learn more about the nature of the error code 202, the sandbox itself. Let's hope Google will restore their account. Taking into account an educational nature of the security issues found in the GAE Java security sandbox and what seemed to be an appreciation, Google has arbitrary security research, all sorts of sandbox escapes. We hope the company makes it possible for us to complete our work and re-enables their GAE account, he also added. So definitely very interesting. Very interesting there. Google kind of noted that there was an issue um, and said, you know what, let's go ahead and stop this. It looks pretty nefarious. You know, they're trying to do some security research without prior approvals. So, you know... I am glad that they were doing this testing. I want to know this, but I also applaud Google for recognizing that there was nefarious uh, activity occurring, not necessarily malicious, but nefarious. But something occurring, yeah, right? definitely. So that's good that they noted that and, and you know, um, did the first deconfliction action, which was, you know, disabling the account. So, um, Death Ring. Death Ring? Wait a minute, is this... The Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, Death Ring. No, this is Death Ring, coming to an android near you. Oh, where is Vic? Man, so Vic is not here tonight, of course, right? And he gets a new phone. We didn't have anything to eat, so he didn't bring any pizza or anything. 
But he got the new phone last week. Remember, he got his Android, so now he's got some malware to be um, uh, aware of. Right, you took a picture last week, so I think we can mess with that picture. (laughs) (laughs) We'll post it up. We'll post it up, so be sure to check that out. Um, But, yeah, Vic, man, I'm eating Doritos (laughs) and water. Come on, man. I'm eating toast, cheese, crackers, real peanut butter, and water. It's real. It's for real. All right. So, anyways, let's talk about something that's really real and uh, not your peanut butter cracker sandwiches things. So, um, Death Ring, it's preloaded malware that hits smartphones for the second time in 2014. So, when you walk out of a retailer with a shiny new phone like Vic, you trust that it's clean and safe to use. But this might not be always you know, the case, as evidenced by the latest preloaded malware lookout identified called Death Ring. Death Ring is a Chinese Trojan that is pre-installed on a number of smartphones and most popular in Asian and African countries. Detection volumes are moderate, though they consider it a uh, concern threat, a concerning threat, given that it's preloaded nature and the fact that they are actively seeing detections around it, uh, you know, around the world. Right. Mm-hmm. What exactly does it do? Well, the Trojan masquerades as a ringtone app, but instead. Uh, can download SMS and WAP content from its command and control server to the victim's phone. It can then use the content for malicious means. For example, Deathring might use SMS content to fish victims' personal information by fake text messages requesting the desired data. But it may also use WAP or browser content to prompt victims to download further APKs. Remember the image APK we were talking about uh, four or five episodes ago? Yeah. Yeah, this is something that can be used in that type of chained attack. Also, remember WhatsApp? There was an issue mm-hmm. with WhatsApp yep. a little bit ago. So concerning, given that the malware authors could be tricking people into downloading further malware that extends the adversary's reach into the victim's device and data. The malware is activated in two ways, both dependent on the victim's use of the phone. First, the malware will activate if the phone is powered down and rebooted five times. On the fifth boot reboot, the malware starts. Second, the malicious service will start after the victim has been away and um, present at the device for at least 50 times. So, um, you know, you have to have show some level of activity with interacting with the device at least 50 times. So reboot five, activity 50. Which phones are affected? They're not currently aware of where in the supply chain Death Ring was in, Death Ring was installed, but they do know Death Ring is loaded in the system directory of a number of devices. These devices are mostly from third-tier manufacturers selling phones to the developing world. They include counterfeit uh, Samsung GS4, Note 2, various uh, is this Techno devices, um, Gianni Gianni GPad. G1, Gianni GN708 Whiskey, Gianni GN800, Polytron Rocket S2350, Hitech Amaze Tab Carbon, Tephone A34 slash A37, Jiu G4S, which is a Galaxy S4 clone, Higher H7, and um, specified an i9502 plus Samsung clone. And the main countries of uh, concern are Vietnam, Indonesia, India, Nigeria, Taiwan, and China. Doesn't this sound familiar? 
earlier this year, Lookout started detecting another preloaded piece of malware called uh, Mawabad, which is very similar to Death Ring. Mawabad is a pre-installed somewhere in the supply chain and affected predominantly Asian countries, though they did see some detections in Spain. Fortunately, it is impossible for or unfortunately, excuse me, it is impossible for security vendors to remove this malware because it's pre-installed in the phone's directory system. However, fortunately, Lookout detected it. So therefore, if you have Lookout installed on your phone, it would be looking for this type of uh, this this type of file on the phone, type of malware. So you can, however, use the following tips in order to stay safe. Be aware of the origins of the device that you're buying. Download a mobile security app like Lookout that protects against malware as a first line of defense. And if you are alerted to the malware like this on the device, you may want to get a refund. Regularly check your phone bill for any curious charges um, because that, like in the enterprise environment, is an indicator of compromise. So you want to look for those account charges. You want to look for the nefarious activities. You want to ensure that you're doing your due diligence as a cell phone user so you do not become a victim. All right, InfoSec Sync, that's all we got for you guys this week. That's about it. Um, be sure to visit our website. Hit us up on feedback at infosexsync.com if you want to, uh, you know, want us to give us shout outs or um, anything of that nature. You have some criticism or you, you know, think the think the podcast is cool. We love feedback. So feedback at infosexsync.com. And uh, thank you again to all of our supporters and sponsors. Uh, we love doing this for you guys every week. Also, check out our YouTube channel. We've got video from Cyber Maryland and uh, Matt talking about demystifying cloud. And we have ISA International. And ISA International. So we have a, a lot of media up there for you guys to look at um, in your downtime and your leisure. So um, please check us out. And remember, stay safe out there in the world of information security. And uh, see you guys next week.